There's some names I'm going to say that I think you will recognize as I say them. Jim Jones, Charles Manson, David Koresh, Shoko Ashara, Joseph DeMambro, Marshall Applewhite, and Betty Lou Nettles. Most of those names have something in common. <clears throat> A sacrifice was made by the people on behalf of the cult leader. The people would do things for the cult leader. They would give money to the leader. They would abandon their family for the leader. They would sometimes inflict harm on others for the leader. And even in some cases of those cult leaders, the people killed themselves for the leader. And while those guys and gals were part of some cults, bizarre cults we could say, there are religions in the world where people are often sacrificing themselves and working hard to earn their way into favor with the God they worship. Jehovah's Witnesses work hard to, to earn their salvation and hopefully become part of the 144,000 witnesses that are described in Revelation. Mormons work hard by doing good deeds and, and hoping to become God-like and a God in the future by tithing 10%. They're required to do a two-year mission trip at some point. They're told by the local bishop what church to attend and even what service they're supposed to attend in the community. Muslims work hard to please Allah through ritual prayers and other activities. Yet Christianity is completely opposite of those cults and religions I've described thus far. As evangelical Christians, we don't sacrifice ourselves for the leader, nor do we work hard to earn his favor, or do we hope to attain some level of sainthood that we work up the ladder. Instead, Christianity is based on the fact that our leader, our God, Jesus Christ, actually sacrificed himself for us. While those other cults and religions require people to sacrifice for the leader, our leader sacrificed himself for the people. And that's what makes Christianity different. If you've been a Christian for a while and you have non-Christian friends, I bet they have sometimes asked you, you know, why do you practice Christianity? How is being a Christian different than the other religions? Why is your God different than the other gods? And that difference is that God sacrificed himself for us. God went through pain and suffering because of our sins so that we wouldn't have to pay the price for those sins. And today we're continuing our message series, our kind of four weeks leading up to Easter, titled Directions to the Cross, where we're looking at some of these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that would suffer for us and die for us. Last week we looked at Psalm 22, and today we looked at, as Jen read, from Psalm chapters 52 and 53. And I hope this sermon series does two things for you. I hope it's encouraging you to see some of these Old Testament predictions about Jesus, that the Old Testament is authoritative and true and reliable and does predict that Jesus would come. But I hope it also equips you with some passages from the Old Testament as you're talking to people and they ask you about Jesus you can take them to some of these passages and maybe use some of the notes that you take in church to have a conversation with them to show them about how Jesus is described in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
So in our time today, other we're going to look at today the problem, which is sin, that Isaiah describes us, the solution, which was the sacrifice of Jesus, and then the result, which is salvation that we all receive. So if you have the sermon handout there, I'm going to kind of jump around these two chapters a little bit to make it a little easier to follow, but all the verses I'm going to read are provided there for you in order that I'm going to read them. And the problem that Isaiah describes for us is sin. And Isaiah is a little bit of a hard book to understand, and that's why it's good to have a study Bible or maybe a Bible dictionary at your house that you can have handy to look up. Isaiah was a prophet to the people living in Judah, known as the Southern Kingdom, because under King Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the nation of Israel split in two. Ten tribes go and stay up in the north. We call them Israel. Two tribes stay in the south. We call them Judah. And Isaiah is giving prophecies to Judah in the south from 740 B.C. to 680 B.C., 700 years before Jesus comes. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah's book are all doom, talking about what's going to happen to Judah, what's going to bad going to happen to Judah if they don't follow God. But starting in chapter 40, going to chapter 66, the topic of Isaiah is deliverance, how God is going to rescue them and deliver them from their eventual captivity and in slavery. And we read here in Isaiah 50 this prophecy of Isaiah 700 years before Jesus, and he describes the problem which is sin for them in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. He says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now notice a key word that occurs in the beginning and the end of that verse two times. The word all. All of us have gone astray and God has caused the iniquity of us all to follow on him. All people are far and distant from God. All people need rescuing, not just a certain race or a certain gender or a certain people of a certain age, all people. And this is especially significant because Isaiah is a Jewish man writing to the people in Judah. But he mentions all people are far from God. All are sinful and all need a Savior. That's the problem. But then Isaiah in chapter 53 describes for us this sacrifice that's going to solve that problem. And he does it here describing Jesus' life, his trial, his execution, and his burial in Isaiah 53. And he describes Jesus' life for this suffering servant's life in Isaiah 53 too. He says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Here Isaiah describes Jesus as an ordinary man. By human standards, there was nothing attractive about Jesus while he was on earth. He was just another guy on earth. Do you remember the story of Jesus and his family when they go to Jerusalem when Jesus is 12 years old and they start coming back? They just thought Jesus was part of the rest of the crowd like he mixed in. 
then they've realized he wasn't there. But the point there is he was just another 12-year-old hanging out with the other people, walking with them. And even in the Gospels, as you read stories about Jesus doing miracles, he often kind of kind of just disappear and wander into the crowd and people can't find him later. He was just an ordinary looking everyday guy. And the text tells us here that specifically. It says, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. The New English translation puts it this way. It says, he did not catch our attention. You could have missed him if you were just looking at the outward appearance of Jesus. So Jesus was an ordinary man, but he was also living during a spiritually dry time and difficult time for Judah. When the text says that he grew up like a shoot out of parched ground, like a tender shoot, it's describing Jesus' humble background and how there was nothing about his personal appearance that attracted us to him. The parched ground refers to that dry area of Judah, but it also refers to the fact that they were in slavery under the Romans at that time. They once were princes in Judah. Now they are peasants struggling and living under the power of another nation. The metaphor here of a tender shoot suggests insignificant. It's a suckling, kind of like a frail and small little tree. For five years, my wife and I, we lived in California on the eastern side, right near those giant sequoia trees that you might have heard about. There's trees in some of these groves. They are bigger than this platform that you can go and see. Some of them are 2,000 years old. They're so big. But they start as these tiny little suckling trees, and you can often see them around. And I mean, you could kick them over when they're a tiny little suckling, but they eventually grow and get bigger. And Isaiah is describing about during this difficult time of Judah, that's how Jesus, he, it was a miracle that he just happened to spring up during this difficult time. J. Vernon McGee talks about this verse and describes it like you're walking through a desert, a dry desert, and you happen to come upon a big, lush iceberg lettuce right there in the middle. That's what this picture was like for Judah. They're oppressed, they're struggling, then the Savior shows up. So we read about his life there in verse 2 of chapter 53, but we learn also about Jesus' trial and how he was rejected by those that he came to save. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 53, it says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. See, Israel knew about this coming Savior that would come. They've read a lot of these stories. They expected a Messiah to come. They knew the prophecies. And I hope that as we go through these series directions to the cross, and as we did one last year for Advent in December, directions to the cradle, I hope you're getting a feel for all these Old Testament predictions of the Messiah that the Israelites probably knew and were looking for. And it says here in verse 3, he was despised. 
and we did not esteem him. In verse 4, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. This is a way to describe an extremely ill person, someone with leprosy or something where they didn't want to go near him, they didn't want to touch him, they wanted to put him in some other horrible place because of his horrible disease. And while Jesus was rejected like a sick person by the people he came to save, he was also silent in front of those people that he came to save during his trial. In verses 7 and 8 it says, He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. Jesus did not try to stop those people that were trying to kill him. He remained silent rather than defend himself, with one exception. There is one time during his trial that they asked him, are you God? That's the one response he does give them. He affirms his deity when they ask him, but he never says anything to try to prevent them from killing him. He was silent, led to the slaughter, just like a lamb. And when it describes his oppression in verse 8, that describes how he was arrested and bound. Judgment in verse 8 describes how he was sentenced to die. And it's good to remember, Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew the task before him. He knew what had to be done. He was willing to let himself be on trial. He was loving and he was sacrificing himself. So while Jesus was rejected by those he came to save, and he was silent in front of those he came to save, he was also killed by those he was sa came to save. Jesus did not die because of his own sins. He, he didn't have any. He died because of our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes what Jesus did. It says, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was perfect and sinless, but he died for our sins. So Isaiah has described Jesus' life as a young person and an ordinary man. His trial that he went through and Isaiah also describes Jesus' execution, starting back in verse 5. It says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. This verse tells us that Jesus' pain gives us peace. It describes the punishment that Jesus went through. One commentary I read this week says that there was no stronger expressions to be found in the language that denote a violent and painful death. And it was Jesus's, my translation says, chastening that brought well-being. I like the NIV makes it a little bit clear. It says Jesus's punishment brought us peace, is how the NIV translates it. 
And Hebrew grammars call this what's called a genitive of effect, where A causes B. Jesus' punishment brought peace. Jesus' punishment is what gave us peace. Christ's wounds are what healed our sins. Christ's severe punishment brought us spiritual nourishment. Christ's pain on the cross is what brought peace into our lives. So while Jesus' pain gave us peace, his work on the cross means we don't have to work for our salvation. If you jump down to verses 10, 11, and 12, it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore I will allot to him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Notice here at the beginning of verse 10 that Jesus died because of the Father's desire. It says at the beginning of verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Father in heaven wasn't surprised when Jesus died on the cross. God the Father in heaven made the decision to have Christ die for us, sinners, on behalf of us. Why? Because God loves us and he desires for us to have a relationship with him. So he sent his only son to be that sacrifice for us. And we learn that Jesus died for our sins there in verse 10. It says, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. This describes Jesus' whole being, his soul that was offered. The same word for guilt offering is used of all those Old Testament sacrifices in Leviticus that purified the people and cleansed them. And in verse 11, we are reminded that Jesus died for everyone. And we start to kind of approach the end of this chapter. It ends in how it begins describing Jesus' vindication and his exaltation about the good things that he's doing through his sacrifice. Where it says, my servant, he will justify the many. Christ died for everyone, not just men or women, rich or poor, young or old. He died for the many, for all people. And in verse 12, we're reminded that Jesus died with other sinners. Remember when Jesus is under his trial, he's about to be executed, and there was another guy that had already been arrested and was supposed to be executed the next day. You remember his name? Barabbas, yeah, Barabbas, yep, however we say it. And what was he in custody for? Do you remember what he did? Murdered, yep. And Pilate gives the people this option. You want Jesus or you want Barabbas. They say, give us Barabbas. And you see this trade that occurs. So Jesus dies the death of a criminal 
along with two other criminals and thieves. We kind of learn what the people thought about Jesus by who they killed him with on the cross. And that's who Jesus died with other sinners on the cross. So Isaiah has described Jesus' life, his trial, and his execution, but also his burial in verse 9. It says, he get, his grave was assigned with wicked men that he was with, uh, I'm sorry, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Thankfully, Jesus was given a burial that was almost equal to his deity. Instead of being buried with those criminals that he died with, this rich man shows up named Joseph of Arimathea and takes Jesus and gives him a proper burial in a rich man's tomb. And as we come to the end of Isaiah's description here, it's good to, for us to remember, we worship a God that served us. We worship a God that served us in this way, that suffered for us. There's a story in the, the Gospels that I always remember where Jesus is having a meal with the disciples and they're all gathered around and one or two of the disciples start to argue, who gets to sit near Jesus in heaven? Who gets that special throne? Who gets the honor? And Jesus calls a little time out with them all and says, wait, hold on, let me tell you a little something. And Jesus says to them this, he says, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord power over people. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But this is not the way with you guys. For you, the one who is the greatest among you must be like the youngest and the leader like a servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table to eat or the one who serves? It is not is it not the one who reclines at the table, he says? And Jesus ends it with this. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. That's always stood out to me. I think we need to remember that because God served us first. I'm not sure how many religions can claim that God served the people before the people even knew about God. So Isaiah has described the problem, which is sin, the solution, which is a sacrifice of Jesus. And then Isaiah describes the result, which is salvation for us, which is in chapter 52, verses 13 and 15. It says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Verse 15, Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. And here it's a good reminder for us that God's work has been done. Christ has done the hard work for us already. And that's what it means when it says the servant will sprinkle many nations. These people come out of the Old Testament law where the priests would regularly kill sacrifices, take blood and sprinkle it as a sign to purify the people. When they anointed new priests for service, they would sprinkle the new priests with, with fluid as a way to anoint them and make them special and set apart. And that's what this servant is doing for us. Through his death, 
He is sprinkling us and cleansing us, kind of playing on that Old Testament imagery that these Jews would have known about. We need to remember that that servant they considered unimportant did the most important thing of all by cleansing us of our sins. And that work has already been done. Having lived in Texas, I had to listen to a lot of country music. Yeah, ew, someone said, okay. Coming from California, country music was new to me. I remember working as a caddy, and there was a picture in the back of our caddy room in Texas where I worked of this guy with the Texas shirt on, and he had long hair and red hair and braids, and he's playing a guitar at a concert. I didn't know who the guy was. Willie Nelson, right? I didn't, <laughs> never heard of Willie Nelson before. But I remember there was a song I heard as some country music was everywhere. Alan Jackson, Where I Come From. You remember the lyrics to the song? Where I come from, it's cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, a lot of front porch sitting. Where I come from, just trying to make a living and working hard to get to heaven is where I come from. Popular song, good tune, great man that wrote it, but bad theology. We're not working hard to get to heaven. The work has already been done on our behalf. And all we have to do is accept that work by faith in God. It's as simple as, God, I trust you for my salvation. I can't do it on alone. I'm going to repent of those past sins and look to you. And it's a good reminder for us that our work that we do do is evidence of that salvation. It doesn't earn us salvation. Faith and works go together. Doing good and following God should be one and the same thing. When we regularly call people from church to check in on them because we haven't seen them for a few weeks. When we bring meals to people in our church that are sick. When we hear about someone from church that's in the hospital and we go visit them. Those are all good things we do because we are people of faith. We do those because they're evidence of our salvation. They don't earn us our salvation. And we need reminders sometimes. I know I've said that before, and I'm sure you've heard it before. We need reminders because we live in a world where you do things in order to get good things. You work hard in order to enjoy the benefits of those things. If you want to be a car mechanic, you have to go to tons of training to learn how cars work. If you want to be a manager in your job, you have to be an exceptional employee. If you want to be a politician, you've got to find a way to win an election. If you want to be a welder, you have to go to school. If you want to be an electrician, you have to be an apprentice for two years. Our world says that good things only come after you work for them. But when it comes to spiritual things and our salvation, those things come to us without that hard work. And it's good for us to sometimes ask ourselves, are we doing good things in church and trying to help out because we're trying to earn something with God? Or are we doing those things because we love God? So what makes us so special as we wrap up our time together? Why would you serve in your church regularly, someone might ask you. Why would you give money? Why would you read your Bible every morning? Why would you spend your free time, you know, hanging out at church after potluck? Why would you spend a Sunday morning going to a work day? Okay. We do those things because of God's work. 
that he has done for us. That's why you write down all your thoughts so you can handle interruptions <laughs> in a very detailed outline so you know exactly where you were and where to keep going from. Christianity is a group of people that do not work for a leader or sacrifice for a leader or try to earn our stripes. We don't sacrifice ourselves for a leader. Instead, we follow a leader that has sacrificed himself for us. And that's the subject of this psalm, this song that Isaiah describes for us. It reminds me of a story I heard uh, years ago, or I read years ago, from James Dobson. <clears throat> He talks about going to Boston and he visited the museum for the Titanic ship that sank in the 20th century. And there's all these different exhibits in, in the museum on the Titanic about the cutlery people had and what they did and what they brought on the ship. And at the very end of the museum, they have an exhibit that lists all the names of people that died when the ship went down. And he said he was surprised to read the names and learn about that because 56 boys and girls died that night. 114 women died that night. But 1,339 men died that night. And as he learned more and read more about that story, he learned all those women and children that survived, many of them had the very same story they told, which sometimes we see documentaries or movies that kind of mess up the story. But there was a same testimony these women and children shared, was that fathers and grandfathers and men knew there was not enough boats to save everybody. So all these men willingly handed over their children, their wives, their mother-in-laws, and knew that they were sacrificing themselves. James Dobson puts it this way when reflecting on that event. He says, it was one of history's most stirring examples of sacrificial love. Those doomed men disappeared into the icy waters of the Atlantic in order that their loved ones might survive to see another day. And like those fathers that disappeared into the icy waters so that men and children could live, Jesus did something similar. He descended into death, into a tomb, so that we too could live. Let's pray. God, thank you for your, your word here. <clears throat> thank you for speaking to Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was born telling your people about this servant that would come. I pray that you would help us be people that can tell others about your servant that has come. Even though it's a simple message that Christ died for us and died for them, I pray that you would help us to remember it and help us to convey it to others. That regardless of all the tough stuff that went on in life, Christ has died for their sins. Christ has paid the penalty and been through everything they've been through. And that through faith in him, they can receive salvation forever in heaven. And these things we pray. Amen.